Welcome to Bethel World Outreach Church. Our values are devotion, diversity, and discipleship. Devotion through honoring God by trusting His Word, praying, and worshiping together. Diversity by embracing God's heart for every nation. And discipleship by helping others follow Jesus. So join us as we're reaching a city to touch the world. Thank you. It really is an honor and a privilege to be here with you about... I guess about two weeks ago, Pastor James texted me and asked if I would preach today, and he gave me a scripture to preach, which I will try my best to be faithful to that, because Pastor James was planning to be in New York City um, this weekend. Uh, As Pastor Dave said, he was unable to do that because of the situation with his brother, and we're trusting God that um, that will be resolved uh, for his glory. But the reason he was planning to be in New York City, along with Bishop Rice Brooks, um, is because today is September 12th, and I want to tell you what happened. We all know what happened 20 years ago yesterday, but they were going to New York because of what happened 20 years ago today, September 12th. Um, The first thing that Rice, he was the pastor of this church at the time, the senior pastor, and Immediately, his response to the attacks of 911 was to call a prayer meeting on September 12th. And some of you have been around Bethel long enough and you were in that prayer meeting. And when the prayer meeting ended, Rice and Pastor Tim Johnson, anybody remember Pastor Tim? Uh, He's planted our sister church in Orlando. They started the 20 hour drive to New York City to go, they weren't sure what to do, but they knew that the tragedy required an immediate response to go and serve and minister however they could. Now, a month later, a church was planted. And here is, behind me, or on your side, on the right, Miracle on 44th Street, you see a young Rice Brooks a young Tim Johnson, a young Ron Lewis, and a young Kevin Singleton 20 years ago. And it was a miracle on 44th Street because our church was planted on 44th Street, a block from uh, Broadway, 44th Street, and miracles were happening. Miracles have changed lives. How the gospel transformed lives, how the gospel overcame sinful lives and crushed lives, and God started changing lives. Now, today, 20 years later, this morning and last night in New York City, Bishop Rice is there, Pastor James was supposed to be there. They're launching Pastor Ron Lewis's book, Miracles in Manhattan. And what Ron did, he wrote a book, and he features 50 people whose lives were miraculously changed by the gospel of Christ over the last 20 years. It could have been 500. It could have been a lot more, but he picked 50 of those. But I want you to notice, I'm sure it's not lost on you, miracles. A miracle on 44th Street. That was the birthing of the church. Miracles in Manhattan. The lives changed. The miracle, okay? Every time Jesus changes a life with the gospel... The greatest miracle in the world happens. Spiritually, someone is raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. But here's the question. How does the miracle of a changed life happen? 
I am certain that everyone in here, we have some things in our lives that probably should change, and maybe we've worked really hard for them to change, or maybe we've worked really hard to convince ourselves they don't need to change, or maybe we've worked really hard to convince other people that we've really changed, but we haven't, but we all need change. But how does God change lives? That's what they're celebrating in New York, and that's what we're talking about today. So I want you to turn with me to the Scripture Pastor James asked me to preach today, Matthew chapter 4, very familiar passage to everyone here, Matthew 4, verses 18 through 22, 18 through 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is the word of God. Now we want to see what it means to us today. To understand what Scripture means, and somehow we need to go back in time, because the idea of a fisherman and the idea of a rabbi calling fisherman doesn't make sense to us today. So two just simple background concepts I want to briefly touch on to go to the meat of this. First is the idea of a first century Jewish rabbi. Now we don't have a lot of those wandering around Nashville today. But a first century Jewish rabbi, an itinerant teacher, these were, these were serious Jewish people about their faith. And so these rabbis would teach typically teenagers. 13 years old, up through the teenage years, sometimes into their 20s, and people would pick a rabbi that they wanted to follow. But if a rabbi were, was, was one who picked people to follow him, that was an outlier. That was a different kind of rabbi. That was going to be a radical rabbi who didn't do things by the book. So there's some little hints here about the way this went down that is out of the ordinary but that teenagers would follow rabbis and learn from them was very normal. They were the disciples of rabbis. Disciple was a common idea. Secondly, the idea of fishermen. Bethel is privileged to have one of the world's foremost fishermen, the world-famous Dr. Pastor Dave Ward right here. If you don't know, if you don't know, Dave Ward is a, he's a fisherman. He's a fly fisherman. That's like the you know, the way I grew up fishing, fly fishing is like another level. Seriously, he knows more than you would ever need to know about fish and fishing. I, I love hearing Dave talk about fishing. It, 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 it's an eye-opener. But that's not the kind of fishing we're talking about here. Because we think in Tennessee about fishing, we think about either a fly fish or a spinning rod or where I come from, a cane pole and a line and a hook and a worm, we think in terms of one person fishing for one fish at a time, right? That's not what this is. Now, that was done in those days, but that's not what we're talking about here. Net fishing required hard, laborious work. 
back-breaking manual labor, but not only hard work, it required teamwork. It was a community of people fishing together, not an individual. I used to fish with my grandfather, and um, when I fished with my grandfather at our family, uh, at our family lake house, I basically, for my grandfather, fishing was synonymous with taking a nap. That's not what this is. There was no nap taking in this kind of fishing. This is hard work. Two things a fisherman valued more than anything else. If you had these, you could make it as a fisherman. If you didn't have these, then you were at the bottom of the rung economically. A net and a boat. There were other fishermen who would be hired by people like Peter and Andrew and James and John and their families. And those people didn't have a net, and those people didn't have a boat. And so they were hired, barely getting by. I've heard preachers talk about the disciples as being extremely poor. I've heard other people talk about and try to paint them as if they were these rich, wealthy entrepreneurs. The truth, as often is, is somewhere in the middle. These fishermen, because they owned their own nets and they owned their own boat, the most important business tools in that part of the world at that time, they were middle class, what we would call middle class. So think about the net and the boat as we go into this passage. I said we're going to talk about how Jesus changes lives. These four young men who are called, Andrew, Peter, James, John, their lives were radically transformed from that moment on. Everything changed. We know the story, and we know how it ends, but if you could put yourself there in that moment, these four teenagers, everything changed, but they had no idea the price they were going to pay for this initial response to follow this rabbi. No idea. They had no clue the level of sacrifice that would be required of them. They didn't know that within a few short years, James would have his head cut off by a sword at the hands of crazy, a crazy leader named Herod. They had no idea that Peter would be in prison multiple times, that John would be the only one of the four who died of natural, a natural death as an old man, but he did that in exile running for his life. They had no idea the sacrifice, the pain, the suffering that would come on them and their families because they decided to follow Jesus. I, a lot of the sacrifice and the pain that my following Christ caused my family was completely lost on me until I became a grandfather. And as a grandfather, being close, I'm fortunate that all of my grandchildren live in the Middle Tennessee area. I realized how hard it was for my parents and my in-laws that I was raising their grandkids on the other side of the world in Asia. I spent most of my adult life in Asia. You see, oftentimes when we decide to follow Jesus, it impacts everyone around us, not just us. And I would be lying to you if I told you there wasn't a sacrifice and pain and loss involved. But there's more than that. These guys also, not only did they have no idea the price they would pay to follow Jesus, 
They also had no idea the glory. I don't even, I wish I could find a better word than glory because that sounds so religious. But that's just the best word there is. They had no idea the glory that would be a part of this adventure. They got to see what Aachen talked about. Food multiply before their eyes. They got to see crippled people walk. They got to see blind people's eyes opened and people who were trapped in demonically uh, oppressed people break free. They got to see the Mount of Transfiguration. Three of these four were up there. They met the law and the prophet face to face, Moses and Elijah. Can you imagine that? I mean... That would be like as amazing as meeting what? Uh, like Justin Bieber or something for some, some people. I mean, it's like, wow. Or Derrick Henry, whoa. There was sacrifice and there was glory. They got to be in that Last Supper. They were in the Garden of Gethsemane. They saw and talked to the resurrected Christ. They were there at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out and they lived through much of the book of Acts except James whose head was cut off. Wow, what, a, what an adventure. It's both. Following Jesus, there is a price to pay and there is a glory that's a part of it. It's both. As we look at this text, I want to make three simple statements to help us understand what following Jesus is not and what it is. Because simply what he called these people to, he called them to follow him together. All right? Discipleship is simply following Jesus together, not individually. James couldn't follow Jesus without following along with Peter and Andrew and John, even if they didn't like each other. Have you found that out, that Jesus kind of puts you around people that don't think like you, act like you, eat like you, respond like you, react like you, and they don't look like you? But that's part of how he changes us. Part of the change process, the miracle in Manhattan, the miracle on 44th Street, the miracle on Granny White and Old Hickory Corner. Part of the miracle is that we follow Jesus together and something starts happening. Following him together, here's what it is. When we talk about discipleship, it's not a program, okay? It's about people, not programs. So often in the modern world, discipleship is a program or a class. Jesus did not call Peter and and Andrew and James and John to join a class. He called them to follow in community. Discipleship is calling to community. In my own life, as a brand new believer, um, as a 16-year-old, I was asked to to join this discipleship group at First Presbyterian Church in my hometown in Jackson, Mississippi. I didn't grow up in First Pres, but that's where I heard the gospel. I don't remember the books. I don't remember the curriculum. I don't remember the course. I don't remember anything that we did, but I'll never forget the people. Some of them became my lifelong friends. We walked with Jesus together. I saw one of them a month ago. I was going back to my hometown to visit my family, and there was one guy, I have to contact him. I have to let him, I have to see him. I don't have time, it's just a family thing, but I had to. Lifelong friend, because when we were teenagers, we started following Jesus together. 
I don't remember the other stuff, but I can't forget the people. When I got to college, I was in a discipleship group with a group of, group of young men, college students like me. I don't remember the books. I don't remember the curriculum. I don't remember the classes. I don't remember the course, but I'll never forget the people. One of those was Bishop Rice Brooks. He wasn't a bishop then, believe it or not. We were in a discipleship group together in college. You get it? This thing is about following Jesus together. It's not me and Jesus. Forget everybody else. It's following him together. Secondly, it's not about perfection. Sometimes we think, well, you know, you, you can be a Christian and then there's just another level where you become a disciple. And it has to do with you pretty much perfected this whole Christian thing. Discipleship in this story is about progress, not perfection. It's progress in the right direction not getting to some place of perfection. Jesus said these words, follow me. Follow, it's the idea of progress. Some of you know uh, my son and I, along with a friend and his son and another friend and his son and four others, went on a motorcycle trip. We left Nashville and started heading west. When it was all over, we had gone 4,845 miles. 15 days, 14 nights, 11 states, 10 motorcycles, which included six Indians, one BMW, one Kawasaki, one Honda, and one Suzuki, may it rest in peace. It's still in Montana. I think that Suzuki just looked around and thought, I'm not going back to Tennessee. I'm staying right here, right on the edge of Beartooth Highway, the most glorious road in all of America. We dropped flowers on it, and <laughs> we actually had a funeral service. I'm a pastor. What, what do you say? Eight national parks, 11 states. Let me show you the plan. I know some of you are going to laugh at this. I ask your grandparents what this is. This is called a map. Some of you think, is that the ones the pirates used? Yeah, this is exactly right, okay? Now, I know you can't see. I just, this is a map. All right? People my age use these. And so when we would go, I would pull this out, and my son would laugh at me because he has a GPS on his motorcycle, this big screen. Now, I have to say, on this trip, we had a couple of us in our 60s, guy in his 50s, couple in their 40s, some in their 30s, and some in their 20s. So the people in the 50s and 60s understood this. This was the plan. If you're on the front row, you can see I've got some green highlighters and some pink highlighters. The green is the way we were going. The pink was the way we were coming back. And I've got everywhere we were going to stop and all these things we're going to see. I mean, this was the plan. But... If we follow the GPS, showing what we really did, it doesn't look like that. That's kind of how discipleship is. We get a plan, we get a tick box and all this, but it usually doesn't work that way because what we didn't count on were three empty tanks. I hate to say this, but three, three different times people ran out of gas. Two of them were understandable. They were novices. They were beginners. They hadn't done this much. One was a veteran who will remain anonymous because he's my friend. We didn't count on running. We also didn't count on a flat tire. I had a flat tire just outside of Mount Rushmore. And it took a whole day because 
bless their hearts, Indian motorcycles, decided that they would make their hub in a way that the, the, the uh, not the tube, but the thing that you, valve, there you go, thank you. The valve is at an angle on the way the hub is designed so that you have to buy your tubes from Indian authorized dealers and pay four times as much as anywhere else. Good on them. We didn't count on that, that lost day. We didn't count on that Suzuki committing suicide. There were a lot of things we didn't count. It didn't turn out the way we did, but you know what? We ended up back in Nashville. The discipleship journey, it can look really nice on a piece of paper and you tick these boxes, but in reality, it's more like our trip. You don't count on a lot of ups and downs and a lot of stumbling and a lot of things take a lot longer than it should have on paper. It's a journey. It's progress, not perfection. If your discipleship journey is not turning out the way it was planned, it doesn't matter. Just keep making progress as you follow Jesus together. Some of it will take longer than it did with others, but enjoy the company and the view along the way. And finally, sometimes in discipleship we get so focused on the past, we obsess with understanding and fixing the past. But discipleship is not so much about the past as it is about the future. Jesus said this phrase, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Here's the way I wrote it down in my journal a few weeks ago. Follow me and I will make you what you are not yet but you know you should be. If we will follow Jesus together along that journey, he will start making us into what we are supposed to be. What does that mean for you? Every one of us, I'm sure somewhere in our mind, there's this person we're supposed to be at some point and we're not that. Might have to do with your being a good dad or a mom or a husband or a wife or your ideal Christian or son or whatever it is. We have these, boy, I should be that, but I'm falling short. I'm not really that. All this is going on. I know some people like practical application to a sermon. I don't always do that, but here, I'm going to give you a checklist. There's one item on it. Here it is. For those who need a checklist, you need a to-do list. Here's the to-do list. Follow Jesus together. If you've been following him alone, stop trying it that way. It doesn't work. Follow him together. If you just got a bunch of together but Jesus isn't in it, start following Jesus together and watch him make you into this person you're supposed to be. It's not by trying harder. It's not by gritting your teeth and going, I will do better. I I will not do that again. I will not do that again. Oops, I will not do that again. I will not do that. It's not that. It's not self-help, self-effort, pulling myself up by my spiritual bootstraps. That's not the gospel. It's not about our past. It's about our future. It's about what Jesus is making us. There's a resurgence in the modern world of this ancient Japanese art, this philosophy of life, but also art, kintsuji. Some of you heard of it. Some of you haven't. And what they did, you know, um, if you've watched that documentary on Japanese culture, um, Karate Kid, then you know (laughs) that the tea ceremony 
in teacups and all, very important part of Japanese culture. And what happens when those teacups would break, or actually sometimes it was very valuable pottery brought in from China would break and crack, uh, the Japanese who don't waste anything culturally would repair them rather than throw them away. What we would do is throw it away and go back to TJ Maxx and get another one. But they don't do that. They fix it. And what happened over time because of the way they fixed the broken pottery, the cracks and the brokenness and the broken pieces and sometimes missing pieces, they would make a lacquer and they would mix in powdered silver, gold, and platinum. They had no intention and no attempt at covering up the broken parts or the fact that it was broken. What they did is made it more valuable in the art world and more beautiful to people who understand this thing because of how the broken parts were fixed. Because of the silver and gold and platinum put into the cracks. You can see the gospel implications of this. Christianity and discipleship is not about pretending like we don't have a broken past. It's not about trying to convince people and cover up all the mess that we are. It's about allowing not gold, and a lot of people try to cover those cracks up with gold, with gold watches and gold chains and gold rings or with cars or with big houses or with whatever. We try to cover up and fill the cracks, and it doesn't make it any better. But there's a way to fill those cracks. It's not lacquer with gold and platinum, but it's the blood of Jesus. Not covering up the broken parts, but allowing the blood of Jesus to go in and heal them, but there's always a scar, but it's part of the story. I was thinking about this idea the other day, a couple of days ago, meditating on this sermon and how to communicate that. And I was on a phone call with a good friend who had a medical procedure. And we talked about it, and this was on Friday, this conversation. So I asked about his son after we talked about his medical procedure. His son owns a restaurant. And I'm going to be vague here because I don't want to people guessing who I'm talking about, but most of you don't know him. Um, and I asked about his son, and he said, oh, it's pretty cool. He opened a new branch, a new restaurant. And uh, he said he got this beautiful countertop from a very, well, very just high of, top of the pile woodworking artist in their area this kind of wood that has these big gaps in it and what he did because it's a coffee shop restaurant this guy filled up those gaps in this wood with coffee beans not with gold silver platinum with coffee beans and put lacquer on it and he sent me a pic I actually have a picture of it did I don't know if it did I send you that I'm not sure if we sent that picture or not but but there's a picture of it and there's the cracks in the wood filled with coffee beans and it was I thought about this and I thought about what Jesus does to fill up the cracks and the gaps and the brokenness in our lives but we tend to think if I just try harder it's going to be okay the idea of trying hard I'm going to close with this thought and I can't I I wish I could just summarize this but I can't because it's the words of C.S. Lewis he's I mean to try to summarize his words is very difficult Uh, But I think he paints a beautiful picture. Now I want to give you the title. As I close, I'm going to give you the title of my sermon. I don't usually do sermon titles, but Bryson, Pastor Bryson has been asking me for the title. I think Saturday we sent back and forth maybe a half a dozen titles, and that one's good. That one doesn't make any sense. And so I didn't choose any of them. Here's the title. Flying Horses, 
and formational discipleship. There's the title, okay? And here's why that title. C.S. Lewis writes about flying horses. And here's what he said in Mere Christianity. This, it's not this idea of we try hard, but it's what Jesus does in us and for us and through us. Quote, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but, by turning, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it has got its wings, it will soar over fences which could never have been jumped and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. But there may be a period while the wings are just beginning to grow when it cannot do so, and at that stage, the lumps on the shoulders, no one could tell by looking at them that they're going to be wings, may even give it an awkward appearance. And I I was thinking about those words of Lewis. Horses that can fly instead of jump. And instead of just working hard and exhausting yourself to get better at jumping, what if you just had wings and you fly? See, that's what the gospel does. The gospel is not you try harder, you better try harder, you need to try harder, you need to do more. No, no, no. It's follow Jesus along with other people and watch him grow wings on you if you're a horse, but watch him change you into what he wants you to be. Now, how do we respond? How did they respond? Here's how Simon and Andrew and James and John responded. You see this word comes up each time in this text? Immediately. Immediately they left. Immediately Andrew and Peter left their nets. The most valuable thing a fisherman had. What separated a fisherman in that day from poverty and middle class was a net and a boat. And what the scripture tells us, immediately Peter and Andrew left their nets. Immediately James and John left their boat. What that tells me is if we're going to follow Jesus together, we have to leave something behind and it's probably valuable. It's probably something that means a whole lot to us. We all know we need to leave our sins behind. Yes, that's a, that's a given. But there's also stuff that keeps us from following Jesus together with others. Maybe it's internal stuff, forgiveness issues. Maybe it's dysfunctional, abusive relationships. Maybe it's immoral relationships. Maybe I know this relationship needs to end because it's not going in the right direction. This has to end if I'm going to really follow Jesus. Maybe it's business practices. Maybe it's a married to a schedule. Maybe it's stuff that's in your schedule that keeps you from following Jesus with others. I don't know what it might be, but I do know if we're going to follow him together and see the change in our lives that he wants to bring, we have to immediately walk away from stuff. Let's bow our heads as Pastor Dave comes up. Lord, thank you that you do not call us just to try harder, but you call us to follow you. Give us your grace to whatever we have to walk away from to follow you. Help us do it in Jesus' name.